Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. All right. Well, welcome everyone to the latest episode of Tech Talk. Uh, as always, we've got some of the most interesting CEOs of technology companies here in Atlanta. And today we're going to be talking to CEO of BioIQ, Justin Belante. How you doing, Joey? Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Uh, glad you're here, Justin. And then we're going to move on to Dave Excel, CEO of FeatureSpace. Hey, Joey. Um, thanks for having me on this morning. Absolutely. Okay. So as always, we go alphabetically. We are going to start with Justin. Um, so Justin, we, we were talking a little bit before this, and it sounds like you've got a you have similar child situations. I've got a three-year-old and a four-month-old, you've got <laughs> a four-year-old and a three-month-old. Um, yep. and, and you also have a company to run and, uh, I'm, I'm curious how everything is going, juggling all of that. Yeah, well, we're obviously with the three month old being very strict with our, uh, quarantine at the moment. Uh, so, uh, I guess it's, that's all on my wife and she's been doing a fantastic job, but could not focus and, uh, you know, grind to the extent that we're grinding without her. Yeah. So we've got you know, the commonality behind the companies we have in the show where generally there's an Atlanta story involved. And both 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 your companies have very interesting Atlanta stories. Not only moves to Atlanta from different locations because of, um, you know, business climate, um, but also really highlighting, I think, two, um, two sectors of technology that Atlanta has become really, really good at. One is healthcare. Um, and the other is kind of the intersection of cybersecurity and fintech. Um, healthcare is where you focus, and so uh, let's let's start with just a high level what BioIQ is, and then I want to back up and talk a little bit more about how how you got to where you did because it's a little bit of an accident. I think is an interesting story for one here. Yeah, so we're we're a healthcare technology company, and we're fundamentally disrupting the. Uh, healthcare testing and immunization space, uh, really by just making it easier for people to access and get uh, all of the routine uh, lab testing that they need and immunizations on an annual basis. And, and so what is the challenge here? Is this just life gets in the way, the doctor's office doesn't send you the notice, you forget about it, um, it doesn't seem as important, it's just in today's day and age when we seem to have more things pulling us in, in any direction than ever that this just falls by the wayside for so many people? Yeah, it's uh, fundamentally one of those aspects of healthcare that just has not evolved and kept pace with consumer expectations in general. Uh, and so really it comes down to you know, often a lot of health testing, especially on the preventive side or managing a condition uh, doesn't get done. Immunizations don't get done. One, because it's not convenient enough. Uh, for a consumer, uh, two, because it's not accessible. Uh, and that access issue, it's, it's really not only a consumer issue, uh, it's really a social determinants issue. I mean, you have socioeconomics or people that live in certain geographic areas that literally just do not have access to hospitals, physicians, uh, the same type of access we do, especially in major metropolitan areas. So it's a, it's a big challenge for certain uh you know, demographics or certain parts of our population and society. Sure. I, I suppose you can look at this as feeding two buckets, right? You, you've got um, the convenience factor for 
people like us on this call who, you know, again, this is a blanket statement, but I'm going to make an assumption are relatively comfortable and have access to those sort of services. And you've also got it really creating, um, I guess I would almost look at it like curing a healthcare desert almost, right? You know, if you think of food deserts yeah. um, in lower socioeconomic areas, I think you could probably apply the same principle to healthcare um, and access and time um, for, for those sort of activities as well. Yeah, exactly. I think the the food desert and the healthcare desert is a great analogy there. Uh, and so finding workflows and delivery models to get care to people, uh, that's a big challenge. And then I think the other challenge is really just making sure that we're getting the right care in the form of the right testing, the right immunization to the right person at the right time. So how do you go about getting to know a consumer? Let's let's say that we've got someone um, who doesn't have a lot of medical records, right? You know, look, if you asked me, I could say, you know, fax, fax you over or email over, uh, you know, medical records from my last three doctors, right? If you ask someone who's maybe in this healthcare desert that we're speaking of, probably not as possible. They might necess- not necessarily know, you know, their um, healthcare background. They might be able to tell you what's going on today, but it might not give you the whole picture. How do you get to know that person? who doesn't have a ton of information so that you can properly serve them? Yeah, great question. So, you know, we primarily sell into B2B channels. So business to business channels, we're selling to health plans to help them manage their population, employers to help them manage their employee population, or to uh, governments, state and federal governments to help them manage populations. And typically when we start, we're getting information, really demographic information, from those large organizations on uh, you know who who needs help uh, who's not getting specific type of testing that they need on an annual basis where is their you know, quote unquote gap in care uh, and so with that basic demographic information we also you know we have a lot of data on you know having been in business over fifteen years we have data on how how people like that in those areas uh, or people who have similar kind of consumer characteristics, how they have navigated care in the past. And that essentially allows us to, you know, our goal is really to try to understand and predict how they may behave as a consumer and therefore find the options or fit the care that they need into that consumer behavior. And mm-hmm. if we can do that, then instead of like most healthcare, asking people to change their behavior, which is really a, a losing strategy, uh, we can actually reinforce behavior and if we do that, then we're more likely to have successful outcomes. People are more likely to be compliant, get testing because they're acting the way they normally do as a consumer. And they also have a better experience and higher customer satisfaction. If you think about healthcare right now, those are two of the biggest challenges, just getting people to be compliant with best practices, but at the same time, creating you know some level of customer satisfaction that rivals a consumer company or you know, what consumers... Uh, or what a consumer company would expect. Sure. This is, look, I can see this is a win-win on, on either side, right? Because you serve several different masters here, right? You have the end consumer, you have the business, you have the health plan. Um, it's got to make sense for all parties. And so from the consumer side, convenient, um, better outcomes from the business um side, right? You're doing something good for your employees. You're hopefully also reducing absenteeism. And from the health plan side, hopefully, you know, that person is, um, you know, less of an insurance risk over time. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think we were lucky. Our, our roots were in uh, on the consumer side. We started as a direct-to-consumer company. So as we shifted into business-to-business, we had a lot of those characteristics that you need to be successful at the consumer level, not just the B2B level. But it just so happens that if you're successful at the consumer level and getting people uh, testing and making it easy for them, then at the B2B level, there's a lot of uh, real obvious benefits. And a lot of that comes in in the form of long-term cost savings. And okay. that's, you know, of course, just on the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a ton of cure. You could use that to generalize what we're trying to do in a population. Yeah. Okay. So so let's talk about roots. You, t- you touched upon roots. Um, you don't really have a healthcare background. Uh, you, you, you came to this by, via happenstance, life experience and opportunity. So I'd, I'd love to get um, your journey um, from you know what your focus was to why you realized this was such a problem and opportunity. Yeah, so so my my background is really pretty far from healthcare. It's materials science and engineering, which uh, basically is a lot of physics. That's another way to put it. Uh, and so I did undergrad and master's work, and then worked on a started a PhD at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, and about three and a half years into that PhD, uh, one of my uh, friends and mentors suffered a stroke uh, and actually spent time with them and their family in the hospital as they had to debate whether or not to pull the plug, which they ended up doing. We learned over that period of time that he had a, a case of diabetes for a long period of time that had gone undiagnosed. Uh, and that was a contributing factor to the stroke. So I found myself back in grad school thinking about how does one of the smartest people on the planet not get a $25 test that could have potentially saved or prolonged their life? And that was in 2005. And if you think about what was happening for consumers in 2005, one of the major events was the disruption of Blockbuster by Netflix. And as Netflix emerged, it was just it was evident so quickly that Blockbuster was, uh, you know, almost complete. It was foregone conclusion that they were going to be extinct. Uh, and so it just became clear to us if if consumers can't drive five minutes to a video store and rent a video for $5 and bring it home and get the instant gratification of watching that. If that no longer, if that experience no longer works for a consumer, just compare that to what going to the doctor, going to a lab, going back to your doctor, compare that to the average healthcare experience. And so that was the goal. We really, uh, we built the company in Santa Barbara uh, and we wanted to be at the time Netflix for healthcare. But instead of sending DVDs, we wanted to send diagnostics into somebody's home where they could prick their finger, put a couple drops of blood or urine sample, drop it in the mail. And like Netflix at the time, we built the, uh, the backend logistics systems to handle all of that, the integration into a network of labs. And then on the user side, we built, instead of being able to manage your movie preferences, really being able to track and manage your health. Sure. And, and it's, this started as something, um, actually, let me back up for a second. So like, I think the comparison to the, the Blockbuster Netflix analogy is quite apt. And at the end of the day, Blockbuster is something fun that you do, right? Going to the doctor uh, exactly. is not necessarily a fun activity. Uh, it's a necessary one, but it tends to fall by the wayside. In addition to, look, let's be honest, we're in a system now that basically rewards doctors for churning through as many patients as possible. and. You know, uh, I mean, anyone who's on this call who has had less than a 30 minute wait time just to see a doctor, um, I, I just don't think it exists right now. So the the time suck out of your day. Um, it's frankly, I'm 
every time I go, I'm, I'm shocked, right? No other profession in this country is allowed to make the people who kind of pay them, um, well, I guess buy their insurance, wait for such a long period of time. It, it, it really yeah. is set up for to fail, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, not only the experience at the doctor, but, you know, there's also a, a bad experience for a doctor if you think about showing up to a doctor's office uh, with really no information other than I have some symptoms. And so what's the yeah. first thing your doctor does when you come in? They basically just send you right out the door to go out and get data in the form of diagnostic testing. So if you think about all the energy and the work involved in trying to get you scheduled to show up with your reminders, booked and logged into the system, all of the administrative overhead to create that experience, which usually that first experience with a doctor, especially if it's just for an annual checkup or an annual visit, really they, they can't do anything on that first visit. It's completely wasted all that energy and admin. But imagine now before that you had actually gone out and got all of your testing, you had all of your data and yeah. you showed up to the doctor's office with a bunch of data about you and your health that's timely, it's relevant, it's what you need. Uh, and now everyone who put all that effort into creating that visit, now that physician can actually operate at the top of their license. They can add real value, have a real discussion about, here's your data, here's you, here's my recommendations. And so I think a lot of what we can do is automate and scale that kind of routine testing on an annual basis, uh, even for something as simple as an annual physician visit. Uh, and just and that makes a, a huge difference in that conversation and really uh, pulls a lot of waste out of the system if you think about what a visit without that data looks like. Sure. That, that really is a very relevant point, right? This, this has to make it has to make sense for doctors as well um, if you want the entire system to buy in. And uh, look, doctors, many doctors are not satisfied with the way the system works, just like uh, patients. So, yep. OK. So you have this idea, and ultimately now where you're at is this is much more of a B2B model, which makes sense, right? You know, you can enter in through organizations and scale to a much wider population than you probably could um, just starting out as an early stage company from the B2C perspective. So what you're going to, I imagine, is this via HR, you know, as a uh, sort of a benefit to employees? What, what's the way into an organization? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So, you know, given our mission to to impact as many lives as possible, we're a mission driven organization just from our from our founding story and our spark. Uh, and so, the best way to have a biggest a big impact from our perspective was to fish with the net, really to to provide these solutions into large populations and leverage the scale uh, of healthcare. And so, really, we sell into health plans. Uh, and when we're selling into health plans, we're selling into a medical director or somebody who's responsible for the health of a population, whether sure. it's their Medicare, Medicaid, or commercial population. And on the employer side, we're typically selling into, uh, as you mentioned, human resources, someone who's responsible for the health, well-being, uh, productivity, uh, and really also somebody who creates the benefits strategy and structure for that population. Because a lot of what we can do can help inform that. Uh, and also, you know, really connect people into that. If you think about a lot of the benefits an employee has, they don't really take advantage of a lot of those because they don't know they need them. And a lot of what we're doing is going in, helping people get a better understanding of their health, where they have risks, and then connecting in and making better use of 
those benefits and that structure that your employer is providing for you. Well, and, and it's impactful, right? I mean, look, not not that um, not to say that discounted gym memberships um, and things of that nature are not appreciated from an employee perspective, but this is something with a little bit more meat on the bone there. Yeah, something that's it's you know it, it's data driven, it's clinical, uh, but it's also personalized. So instead of just throwing out a blanket benefit, hey, everyone should eat better and exercise. We all know that, Uh, but it certainly helps to be a little more targeted and tailored when you say, you know, why exactly is that? What condition may you have or might you be moving towards? And let's take a very targeted clinical uh, approach to helping you as an individual. Um. I'm not asking you to name clients at all, um, but I am curious if you have found commonalities behind the types of organizations that are embracing BioIQ. And that can be sector, that can be region, that can be size. But cl- clearly, it, it takes a special forward-thinking type of organization to understand the value that this offers. I imagine you've probably you know, had meetings with some companies that say, yeah. We don't really understand why we need you and others who really get the value um, and its importance. And uh, I am curious as to the common principles that you have found of those organizations that embrace you. Yeah, I, you know, really this population approach, uh, we've was first engaged on working with health plans on the Medicare Advantage side, that being kind of the cutting edge of healthcare, uh, because those are, you know, those are health plans that are taking responsibility for the overall health and cost of a population. They're very uh, value. They're based on, you know, they leverage value-based pricing. They get paid for outcomes. And so those were the first health plans, especially on that side, were the first organizations to embrace this type of strategy. Uh, We work with uh, over 45 health plans representing over 70% of all the insured lives in the U.S. Uh, And those plans represent over 80% of all the Medicare Advantage lives in the U.S. So, a lot of progress on the health plan side. Uh, And what we've seen is, as you said, progressive and forward-looking employers are really starting to move away from a kind of one-size-fits-all, let's give everybody a gym membership and screen everybody for cholesterol every year, even though they may be 25 years old and that makes no sense. Uh, And let's move towards what health plans are adopting, uh, which is more of a a value-based, personalized value-based approach. We, we have data uh, on individuals. We know even based upon basic demographics, what type of testing and information they need on, a, on an annual basis. So let's target and tailor uh, these solutions to them, even on a, you know, on a population level. Uh, so I think if you think about the employers that are doing that, typically it's Fortune 500, Fortune 100. They have a lot of resources uh, mm-hmm. that can you know, that are interested in investing in their population and can uh, help manage uh, and design these types of programs. Uh, but it's, it's really not limited to that. I think it's, you know, organizations of any size and in any industry have kind of that progressive mentality. It's some of it really just comes down to the culture of the organization. Sure. And, you know, do they invest in their people? Uh, and, you know, do they, va- and where do they value uh, their people? Um, I'd, I'd like to touch upon, move backward for a second and touch upon kind of how you got to Atlanta because you, you bounced around a little bit. You're not a native. Um, and this just touches into 
kind of what, what Atlanta has become from a healthcare IT perspective. So if you could elaborate upon that, please. Yeah. So starting a company in Santa Barbara is great. It's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful place. It's a great place to start. Uh, but it's a very difficult place to scale a business. And when you scale a business, you really need access to a lot of talent, especially in the kind of manager, director, VP level. Uh, and so, you know, very different from your kind of core startup founding team versus a scaled company. And we were fortunate to have some early customers, uh, large customers in Atlanta. Uh, and we actually opened an office here in 2014 uh, due to two factors. One, we had customers here. And two, uh, Atlanta is really a healthcare IT hub. There's over 200 healthcare IT companies in Atlanta. So just a very rich talent pool. Uh, and, you know, a pool that essentially allowed us to scale rapidly. Uh, and so we've, uh, we really kind of grew that office in Atlanta between 2014 and 2019. Uh, and ultimately it just, it made more sense that, you know, the majority of our employees were here versus California. Uh, we had, you know, better access to talent here, uh, better economics around, uh, you know, running and managing a business in Georgia versus California. And so we made that move in January of 2019. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Now look, I've, I've, I've actually had a, a, a couple of days of business in Santa Barbara and it is amazing to look out at the ocean. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, a, a little bit of uh, not the most robust business environment as a whole. Yeah. Very, very high quality of life, uh, but also very high cost of living. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, well, well, look, this, this was fantastic. So, you know, if, if anyone listening either from a health plan or an organization wants to reach out to you to learn more about BioIQ, what is the best way to find you? Yeah, best way to find us is www.bioiq.com. We'll take it from there. All right, Justin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Joey. Okay, Dave, how are you doing over there? Great, thank you. Wonderful. Okay, so so we've got somewhat of a similar story um, in a move to Atlanta, um, as well as kind of a focus on what Atlanta is good at. Um, but but let's start off and give the headline for everyone of who who is Feature Space and, and and what what problem do you target? Um. So we're an enterprise financial crime um, software company. So we provide solutions to. Um, banks, financial institutions, and payment companies to help them prevent fraud and also identify suspicious activity, which is likely to be um, potential money laundering activity. So um, underneath that is a a software platform that's able to process um, transactions and interactions of customers when they um, interact with their bank um, to help understand that behavior and then use that to um, stop and identify those types of transactions. So we use um, machine learning um, to be able to identify those behaviors. Okay, so this is something that financial institutions um, would use to essentially, for lack of a better term, monitor seems big brotherish, but I guess it, it, it sort of is monitoring. Monitor customer transactions to understand if anything as odd is going on, both to benefit customers and any sort of odd activity on their account, but also the institution of itself, if there is some pattern, a greater pattern that's being experienced across the network. Exactly. So we're ultimately trying to protect the consumers. So we're looking at 
understanding what your good behavior is when you interact with your bank or when you spend on your credit card to then identify unusual transactions from what is your typical behavior and then either decline those transactions so that the fraudster is not able to, to run away with your money or also to, to help make sure that those financial institutions are being compliant with um, the regulation. Okay. So the times when anyone listening to this has either probably gotten a text or a phone call or an email of suspicious activity on the credit card, oftentimes it's actually pretty accurate. The software and data that goes into generating that alert response would be essentially something akin to what FeatureSpace is offering. Yeah, exactly. So it's either that or it's a potentially, um, sometimes there's the unfortunate situation when it really is you and you're um, trying to buy something and you get declined. So that's the right. that's what we're trying to continually optimize is that getting that positive experience where we are identifying suspicious and bad activity while also making sure when you are genuinely using your card, um, we, we don't block or add any friction into that okay. process. Okay, so clearly apply for financial institutions. What about big brands? And look, obviously, all you know, big brands where you can you know transact with them online clearly have payment processing systems behind that and interact with financial institutions as well. But I'm I'm just curious if there is technology that you provide that is useful on the front end of that transaction to a brand um, as well. No, definitely. So we have a, a partnership with um, WellPay. Um, so WorldPay is one of America's largest um, payment providers to merchants. So those are both um, can, like brick and mortar merchants and also online merchants. So we help those organizations screen the transactions as they come in to help identify um, fraud or putting controls um, before they then take that transaction and send it across into the payment schemes and then ultimately into the, the bank that issued your credit card to, to ask if you have the available money and if that transaction should then be authorized by them. Okay. So before you existed and before, you know, like before other competitors of yours that claimed to do the same thing existed, what did a financial institution do? Is this all humans basically tracking consumer behavior, trying to identify some sort of pattern. How did this work before we had technology? I guess ultimately that's where it began, but probably going back into the the 1970s, 1980s, as it was all looking at paper-based transactions and trying to identify if that was legitimately you or looking at signatures on um, checks to see did it match the signature on file and was that going through. And then I guess there's been a big progression from then to automate that whole experience. So then it migrated from those basic checks to then starting to implement, I guess, the most basic form of AI, which is looking at rules. So it was looking at fraud that had taken place in the past, um, trying to identify a rule that would describe that fraudulent activity. So it may be the transaction value was over $1,000, could be a, a likely fraudulent transaction. So um, payment companies and banks would implement rules and all of the transactions that, that met that characteristic were then flagged for either declined or they were investigated. Um, and then what we, I guess, continually see is that fraudsters become more innovative. They see how they're being blocked and they, they change their behavior. So then a lot of fraud systems then transition to using machine learning where you're looking at the fraud that's taken place in the past and then you're trying to essentially correlate that to what happened in those previous transactions. So it's 
almost trying to then optimize those rules to identify that bad activity. And I guess, so the key difference that we've made at Feature Space is that we learned that fraudsters continue to innovate. They're looking to dodge all the, the systems that are in place. So rather than learn fraudulent behaviors, we decided to learn good customer behavior because us as individuals, we're relatively um, repetitive in terms of how we use our payment products. So we wanted to learn the profile of the consumer and understand what good activity looked like um, for us as individuals and then really flag the anomalies and unusual trends from that. Um, so that enabled us to be much more accurate at, at predicting fraud, but also being reactive to new types of fraud. So not just relying on fraud that had happened in the past. When there's a new fraud scam or scheme that's been identified, our systems are, are very quick at being able to identify those and then protect the bank and the, the payments companies. Well, you know, what this makes me think of is... Um if you remember the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's this incredible yeah. con man. And, you know, he just goes from location to location. They can't catch him. Finally, of course, the FBI catches up with him. And he essentially gets, you know, help starts helping them, right? To think like a criminal and understand things that they might not be able to see as, you know, law-abiding uh, FBI agents. And so, look, you, you said... Yes, we look at customers and what their good behaviors are. I get that part. But as you and I, as you've established and we both know, criminals consistently innovate. It's incredible how much they innovate, right? And so I would imagine that your technology needs to consistently be on the cutting edge of what is possible from a financial crimes perspective. But you, um, not being a financial criminal, how do you truly understand what is possible? How do you get inside and the mind of and keep up to date with what can truly go wrong. So I guess there's a, like there's two elements to that is really understanding, I guess, the the ecosystem that exists for the, the criminal out there. And I guess a lot of existing systems are very much focused on single points of contact, so single interactions with your credit card rather than looking at the full um, interaction between the customer and their bank. So what happens when you first open your account or what happens when you contact the call center. So where are all the vulnerabilities that exist and how do you layer that information in? So if um, someone is potentially social engineered at a, a call center that enables them to reissue a card or change your address, you want to factor that into your decisions when you actually make, when you're looking at a new payment coming through. Sure. So part of it is that is sort of um, looking at all those um, vulnerable areas but then also we, we have a very strong subject matter expert team that have either worked in banks or financial institutions and helped be on the front line in fighting the fraud and, and reading lots of information, looking on the dark web, trying to do the research and trying to under, understand what the criminals are out there doing and, and how they're thinking. Yeah. Okay. So, so you don't have a reformed fraudster on your staff, but you do have a team that is consistently... Uh, enmeshing themselves in that world as <laughs> legally as possible. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, what? Let's let's rewind a little bit. So, okay. Obviously, we understand what the need for this type of technology is, right? We, we live in a world in which you know most of us don't even carry around cash anymore. You know, everything is put your credit card in a you know online portal and transact that way. Okay. Yeah. You know, paper money might not even well exist. Money at this point is essentially ones and zeros. Okay. Yeah. 
So obviously the need for it makes sense. The question is, why are you the guy to solve it? Why is your company the one to solve it? I guess it's a great question, and we almost got here by accident. We didn't like we didn't start a company and say we were going to be a, a fraud prevention company. Um, when I was doing my PhD and research, I was really interested in how you could use machine learning and statistics to describe um, our behaviors and, and behaviors from more of a physical context. So I often use the, the um, analogy as if you were. Um, sitting in a coffee shop or a bar and you were looking at people that were passing by very quickly, you could say who was a local, who was a business person um, going to a meeting, probably not as usual in, in the current day and age, um, or who was lost and late. So you could look at how they were interacting in that environment by their behavior. So it was how could we teach a machine to be able to have that same interpretation. And then we started looking at how people were interacting in computer games to be able to identify if they were human players or, or robotic players um, to differentiate and make sure that there was a fair playing field there. And then we got introduced to the online um, gaming and gambling industry where they also had a similar problem of identifying fraud. And it was really through that evolution is that we then said, well, there was a great application to understanding the good consumer to um, identify the bad and being able to do that very accurately to um, both make sure good customers weren't impacted, but were able to accurately identify that fraud. And so was that, so was, was your research as a PhD the spark to begin feature space and did feature space essentially then begin as in the gaming industry and evolve from there? Exactly. Yep. That's how we, we began. Okay. And your story is a cross Atlantic one. So feature space has a Atlanta as well as a UK presence, correct? Yeah, that's great. So I was doing my PhD at the University of Cambridge um, over in the UK and that's still where I guess a majority of our R&D team is, um, but then we, we moved over to Atlanta about three years ago. Okay. And let's, let, let, let's hear the Metro Atlanta Chamber pitch, just as uh, Justin told it to us. What you, you looked at, I'm sure, a number of large metros um, in the States, right? Um, and, you know, from, from a, a country like the UK, I think you probably what's top of mind is initially a place like a San Francisco or New York. So, Again, I'm not bashing Atlanta. I love it, right? But why this southern city that you know maybe is not at the top of the gateway cities of uh, the country list? Um, so for us, I guess there were it was I guess a similar explanation was our customers. So um, we had previously um, I started working with Tesis. Um, so Tesis is one of the largest credit card processors um, in the United States, where a lot they work with a lot of financial institutions to actually run the infrastructure that provides that, that banking service. Um, so we had started working with TSIS. Um, and so that's a great reason to start to identify a, a city to work with. And then when we did look out um, at other potential customers and Atlanta having the term transactionality where there's a, a massive proportion of um, US payments are processed through companies that have significant presence here in Atlanta, um, that also made perfect sense for us. Um, and then looking at other characteristics, like um, there's only a five-hour time difference to the UK versus eight going over to the West Coast and having the, the airport to be able to travel across the US made um, perfect sense for us. Yeah. Oh, uh, look, you're, you're preaching the choir here. Um, it is... You know, I think we, we, we should all, we all owe a debt of gratitude to Mayor Hartsfield for... Uh, 
thinking about this 60 years ago. No, definitely. Yeah. So all of us go about our daily lives. We hand out um, our personal information as if it's our phone number, right? We have all become so used to probably doing things we shouldn't, right? Sending a credit card number over text, um, taking a picture of your credit card and sending it to someone, uh, you know, uh, buying things on an unsecured network at a coffee shop. I mean, it's just the, our, our daily lives are probably a crash course in how not to protect <laughs> your financial assets um, and in turn, you're the financial institutions with which you work. So uh, what, what, do, what do you see as the most glaring bad behaviors of consumers these days? And uh, what does it take for us to fix them? Or do we just have to rely on feature space to you know, catch us before we fall? I guess like some of it is that is around um, the sharing of information. So being able to like look on LinkedIn or Facebook and identify when someone's birthday is, is often one of those key questions that gets asked when someone is trying to authenticate you. Didn't even think about that, but that's so true. Yeah. Um, like when you first ring up the bank and they'll often ask, when is your date of birth? And so then that, that becomes an easy one. Um, and also we did a, a survey, I think it was 18 months ago and we looked at, and one of the questions that we asked is, um, do you use the same password for your bank that you also use for social media? And there was a surprising number of people that said yes to that. So yeah. just using something like a, a password manager, like it's almost impossible to remember all the hundreds of difference of passwords we need for all of our different accounts. But using something like that to have um, unique passwords, especially for um, important accounts like your banking account or your credit card account, it is really important. Yeah. No, you're 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 heading too close to home right now. <laughs> um, what what is, what are the next couple of years for Feature Space? So, I mean, look, clearly you're working with some of the largest institutions in this field to try and solve what is really a never-ending problem, right? You know, it's not like you're, look, some companies have the goal of almost like ceasing to exist, right? It's like, I solved this problem that it's done. My goal is to not be here, okay? This will never go away. Um, so is this just, we need to impact as many institutions and consumers as possible? Or is there some additional, you know, wish list of business lines or industries that you haven't really fully infiltrated yet that you really want to? I think for us, there's a, an enormous potential to grow. So it, there's, and there's a few factors to that is a lot of the infrastructure inside banks is going through modernization. So often when we think of that, the front end of banks is they look relatively high tech, but behind the scenes is they're still upgrading a lot of their systems and, and act as, as silos. But so it's how do working with those organizations to bring their data together so that they can be more effective in, in making um, decisions. But then also at the same time, as we're seeing um, a huge amount of innovation in the payments um, system. So going, especially here in the US with the migration to um, the chip and what's called EMB to now more contactless payments with Apple Pay and Google Pay, um, those changes in how those transactions work um, creates new opportunities both for us, but also, also for the fraudster as some of that security increases, they're looking for other ways to penetrate and, and break into that network. Um, at the same time, we're looking at, I guess, what's um, from an ACH payment, which is something in terms of moving money from bank account to bank account is typically 
um, either next day or same day over a number of hours is moving to a real-time um, payment stream. So again, that creates opportunities for fraudsters to be able to move money around much faster than they have before. So the banks need to improve their operational process to be able to respond in real time at the time at which those payments are, are being made. So those, um, as the, we see the industry move, and also this, similar to what you said before, is um, the job of a fraudster has got easier. There is so much good data available on the dark web for them to be able to purchase relatively cheaply sure. that it makes our job even harder. Well, have you have you had to change your business or technology much to deal with the prol- prol- proliferation of um, applications such as Venmo or the Cash App, or has the capabilities behind those forms of payment been pretty consistent? Obviously, PayPal has been around for a while. Yes, those two are a little bit different, but the principle is generally the same. Is it just simply that more people are using it now than ever before? Or has something fundamentally changed about that technology that has meant that feature space needs to shift a little bit? Um, So I guess that almost to our advantage of starting in the United Kingdom where payment technology there is um, probably a few years ahead because there's less organizations involved to be able to make those modernizations change. So um, things like contactless payments, the chips on the card, and also online transactions were were much more prevalent in the UK um, ahead of the US. So that gave us an advantage when we were moving across here because we had already seen a lot of those transitions um, to be able to help um, the financial industry here in the US learn from those lessons and, and not make the same mistakes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense when you sort of think about the, the differences and how those technologies developed. Yeah, especially in the UK where you've got a handful of major banks where in the US is you're looking at uh, thousands up to tens of thousands of individual banks. So there's a different way in terms of how those, the, the financial institutions work with each other to enable those new technologies. That, that is true. So, I mean, yes, obviously you have your big national banks here, you have your big state banks, but you're also, you know, the, the number of small community banks that are around um, and probably not close to modernize is almost infinite. Is that, are those business models and those type of organizations and the number of consumers that they serve, is that somewhat incompatible with feature spaces technology? Or are you really, can you go after something as small as a community bank? So I guess not directly. So our approach there has to be working with the technology providers that work with those organizations. So when they are buying a service to um, process a, a bill or to make a payment is we can work in the background on those systems to provide those fraud services. So that's where we look at a, a lot of the large like fintech-based businesses that are here in Atlanta like um, like a Fiserv or an FIS um, or a Jack Henry, those types of organizations provide those services to the smaller banks and being able to work with organizations like that um, really then um, helps to make sure that really modern technology um, pr- creates a, a, an even playing field from a fraud perspective, from the perspective of the top five banks all the way down to the, the small regional banks or, and the small like single town banks as well. Okay, that all makes sense. So look, for for anyone listening, financial institution, brand, payment processor, they want to learn more about feature space, what's the best way to do that? So the easiest way is to go to our website. So um, similar to before, it's um, featurespace.com or look look me up on LinkedIn and happy to provide more information. Okay, Dave, Justin, thanks a lot for coming on, guys.
Thanks, Joey. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks, Joey. Sure thing. And everyone else, uh, thank you for listening to Tech Talk. We'll see you soon. Thank you.